Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Our scripture reading today is from John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen. is that my wife in the children's ministry can say that we need to also send the fourth and fifth graders. If you would like to go, there is someone in the back to greet you and we'll take you over. Uh, I think we stopped it at third grade a minute ago, but they actually, the teachers are including the fourth and fifth, so you can make your move. Uh, Obviously, this is Thanksgiving uh, weekend, and so many of you have had or have uh, family in town, and many of you are away and uh, watching online, and to all of you, uh, welcome. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm uh, an associate pastor here, and Pastor Michael will be back next week, but I get to uh, finish uh, this series on generosity, and today we're looking at two short verses. Usually they're assigned to me, but I actually picked these. Uh, They are the most famous verses in all of the Bible. And so I am going to try to connect giving and loving. The problem with uh, the word love is it's incredibly difficult to define. In fact, it's much easier to see than it is to define. What I mean by that is I read a story this week about a father and a daughter Uh, The father uh, said in the article that his daughter uh, seemed to grow up fairly normally. She uh, was uh, great in the home. She seemed to have lots of friends. She seemed to be very outgoing until she was in about 13 or 14. And then she began to become a little more rebellious and defiant in the home. Uh, She uh, began to break her curfew and eventually... Uh, got addicted to drugs. And when her parents uh, tried to intervene, she became even more rebellious to the point where she runs away at 15. And while she's gone, they have no idea. They looked for her. Every time they heard about where she was, they would run, but she'd be gone. And uh, then they find out after she turns about uh, 16, Uh, that uh, she's in a rehab uh, court order. And one of the things about this particular rehab, at the very end or toward the end of her stay, they had a family night. That is, you were to invite your family and you were to tell them the story of how you got to this point. And so she invited her mother and father and they came to... Uh, the rehab center and they began to listen to different stories from different people and and then it was their daughter's turn and 
And uh, Sarah got up, and when uh, Sarah began to tell her story, she began to weep from the beginning. And she said, I'm so sorry that I was rebellious. I was so defiant of you that uh, you didn't know what to do with me. It got so bad that I thought that the only way you could be relieved of me as a person is to leave home. So I left home. And I got so addicted to drugs and ran out of money. The only way you know, I could get the drugs that I wanted is because is I turned uh, into a prostitute. And I did that for about a year and until I got arrested and the court ordered me here. And so I'm so sorry. This has been a horrible experience. I know for you as my parent, she's bawling. And so as a result, so is mom and dad. And dad gets up out of his seat. He walks over and hugs her, really holds on to her while she weeps, and he weeps, and he says, I love you, and you are always welcomed home. And she says back to him, Dad, I forgot what it meant to be loved by you, what it meant to be your daughter. You see, we may have trouble defining the word love, especially in our culture, where our culture is with that word. But we know it when we see it. We know what it looks like. We know how it feels. We know how it tastes. We know how it smells. We know how it moves us. I want us to look at these two verses this morning that connect giving and loving in this very short text, just two verses, and yet very profound they are so popular that you could take just the reference 316 and put it on a poster board at an athletic event, and people know the verse. And yet, so profound that it has rescued millions. For God so loved, he gave. These verses teach us about this gift that is given by God. And so we're going to look at really four things. One, the motivation for the gift. That is, God loves what? The immensity of the gift. What is this gift that God gives? The purpose for the gift. That is, what is the gift for? And then lastly, what is the appropriate response to such a gift? So first, the motivation for this gift. God gave because he loved. Martin Luther puts it this way on this verse. He says, this verse is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is not that God is love, but that God so loved, he gave. Where do we start with such a, an incredible, filled to the brim thought about the love of God? Frederick Lehman, who was an early 20th century hymn writer, wrote a hymn that's pretty famous called The Love of God. And he has a verse in there that goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry, nor could scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. 
What's amazing is that Lehman didn't write those words. He saw them on a wall of a patient who died in an asylum. He happened to be coming uh, to pray for other people, and one of the patients he was coming to pray for had passed away. And on the wall were these words that were written by a Jewish poet a thousand years before. But you know that poet stole his words from a man who wrote a thousand years before him. A guy named Paul who wrote, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. The first thing that we learn from this text is that God so loved that he gave. It is a love that moves. It's not just a love that warms us when we see it, but a love that moves us and moved him. God so loved, he gave. God loves us so deeply, so profoundly, so lavishly, so viscerally that it moves him to an action to do something for the objects of his love. So what is the object of his love? And you might want to make it a who first, and that is to see it individually. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. You might say, God so loved me that he gave his one and only son. But I want you to understand, in the ancient world, no one would have thought that way. You see, to think of the Bible in individual terms is a Western, modern world perspective. The Bible was written in the ancient world, which would have saw everything from the context of community, from the whole. This kind of perspective is part of that Western world, this Western world, not the ancient world. Another way to read this is that he's talking about all of humanity. That is, for God so loved humans that he gave his only begotten son. The truth is, both those views diminish the gospel, the good news of this text. It's too small a thing for God to just save you, though he would have. It's too small a thing for God to save humanity. The good news of the Bible is that God is saving all of his creation, his entire world. God looks at this world and says, every square inch is mine, and therefore I save it. For God so loved the world. In Genesis 1, he pronounces a benediction, and we do that here at the church, it simply means a good word. That is, God said something good about what he did. In fact, in case you miss it, if you read Genesis 1, he says it seven times. At the conclusion of every day, he says, this is good. 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 And in case we missed it, after the seventh day, it says that God rested and he looked upon all that he had created and said, it is very good. You see, we've got it wrong in the 21st century where there is the physical bad and the spiritual good. All 
of the physical world is good because a good God made it good. Now, that doesn't mean that it hasn't been affected. Genesis 3 quickly tells us of a malediction, a bad word. In fact, the first bad word ever spoken in the Bible found in, in Genesis 3 where God looked at what man had done, his rebellion against him. He said, you can, man, you can do anything you want to. I'm giving you the whole place. You've got the keys. Except for this one thing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day, you shall surely die. And man did. And the whole world was cursed. It's always winter, but never Christmas, as C.S. Lewis says. Romans 8 puts it this way. The whole world, the whole cosmos is the word that's actually written there groans for its redemption it's too small a thing to just save you it's too small a thing to save humanity he's out for the whole ball of wax he's out to save all of it for god so loved the world well how will he save it well we have to look at the gift to answer that question and it's an immense gift. For God so loved the world, He gave. He gave what? His one and only Son. How do you measure the value of that gift? Well, you measure the depth of God's love by the immensity of the gift. The lavish love of God for His creation is only fully appreciated by us to the degree that we can see the immensity of the gift that was given, His one and only Son. He did not give us a servant. He did not give us a king. He did not give us an angel. He gave us His only Son. That word only means one of a kind. The way that the old creed put it is, He's very God of very God. John will say in the beginning of this book, he was in the beginning with God and that he was God. Paul will write about the gift. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. And so one way to measure this is measure it by the one-of-a-kind son that he had that he gave. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. The other way to measure the gift is by the immensity of the need that the gift meets. If one way to measure it is by the immensity of the gift that is given, the other one is to measure it by the immensity of the need that required the immense gift. You see, the love that gives us what we need 
is greater than the gift that merely meets what we want. You know that's true. Every Christmas, that's what uh, uh, we were just encouraged to do, to think about Christmas. We're already thinking about Christmas. One of the things we do when we begin to think about Christmas is we begin to make our list. But typically we make on our list the things that we want, the things that we desire. But the, the valuable gift, is not the one that meets our desire, but the one that meets our need. That's the one that is most precious. Jesus is God's lavish gift for our need. So what is the need that Jesus is the gift for? Brings us to the third point, the purpose for the gift. Verse 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but save the world through him. He is the gift that saves. But how? Not how you may think. I said before that God created the world good, but that through sin the whole world becomes cursed. We sometimes forget or miss altogether that our world that we live in is cursed. We know that the scriptures say that the world is frustrated and we are frustrated living in it. What we mean by that is nothing works perfectly. You can design the best car. And what will eventually happen to that car? It will break down. You know, cars are meant to operate with gas. That should surprise you. Because when I bought my wife her first car after we got married, you know, they, they kind of put a couple of gallons to get you off the lot. I forgot to fill it up. And so this beautiful working car that was off the factory floor that in every way passed inspection could not go the miles that are necessary for me to give it to her. Because it did not have what happened. You see, we're frustrated because nothing works right. Nothing works the way it's supposed to. And truthfully, even when you buy something brand new, nothing lasts. Nothing in this world lasts. It just doesn't. It was meant to, but that's the malediction. That's the bad word. I'm going to remind you of the curse. Because no matter what you build in it, it won't last. But also the world is broken. In a lot of ways, if you remember Peter Pan's story, The Island of Misfit Toys, it describes all of humanity. We are all the broken toys. No matter how well we hide it on Sunday morning, no matter how during the passing of the peace somebody thinks you've got it all together, you don't. And sometimes through the cracks and fissures of your life, we are able to peer in and see the brokenness. No matter how well you dress it up. The truth is, we have all earned the right to be members of the island of the misfit toys. 
because we are all broken toys. But also the world has evil in it. It does not take us long to watch the news, to read the paper, to see evil in the world. Whether you're on a college campus and you have an invader in your home and kills four children who are just 18, 19, 20. I know you don't feel like children when you're that old, but when you're 61, it, you are children. You are at the beginning of your life, not the end. Parents should not be burying their children they sent off to college. That's evil in the world. But remember the good news. We can't be far from this. As much as we look at the frustration, as much as we experience uh, the brokenness, as much as we see evil, we can't forget. But God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Which brings us to God's dilemma, right? Didn't you know that God had a dilemma? How can God stop what is destroying this world that He loves without destroying the world that he loves. Let me say it a different way. How does God satisfy the world's need for justice and save the world itself that he deeply loves? Oncologists have this problem, don't they? They have to, they have to kill the cancer that's killing their patient without killing their patient. God looks at the cosmos that he created and said was good, and said, how do I save it without killing it? The answer to God's dilemma is revealed in the words, through him. What do I mean? One way to describe humanity is to call us dead men walking. What we mean by that is someone who is so mortally wounded that it's only a matter of time before that person dies. Or they're diagnosed with an incurable disease, no matter what we attempt here on earth, nothing can save them. It also can refer to someone who has been condemned to death for their unpardonable crime. All of these are in view. The one and only Son came to heal the mortally wounded, the incurable, and to pardon the unpardonable. The only way to describe it is to say that God gave His one and only Son to give life to the dead. But how? God so loved the world that the only way to heal and pardon what He loves and not destroy what He loves is to send the only one He loves, His one-of-a-kind Son, into the world as our substitute. He came to take our incurable disease on himself to endure the, the uh, penalty for the unpardonable crime we've committed in our place. I told you it wouldn't be what you thought it would be. This is what it means through him. God solves his own dilemma by putting his only son where we should be and he puts us only where his son should be he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of god that's second corinthians 5 21 here you can see the drama played out through him 
God took this one-of-a-kind son and said, I'm going to put you in the place of my humanity. And then my humanity is going to take your place. And you're going to get what they deserve. And they will get what you deserve as our substitute. The best gifts are the ones that meet our need. God saved the world he loves by condemning the son whom he loves. And the question you raise, you have to raise, is this the only way? Is the only way that God saves the world he loves by killing the son he loves in our place? The answer to the question is that's the wrong question. The question isn't why is this the only way? The question is why is there one way? Why is there any way that a God saves what he loves by killing whom he loves, his one and only son? How should we respond to such an incredible, beautiful gift? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whatever else you get this morning, get this. I have three things, and the first is to get it. We have to receive it. We have to believe it more than simply an intellectual assent. You see, to all, back in chapter 1, Paul said, I mean, John says, to all who receive him, to those who believe he gives the right to become children of God, our world wants to deconstruct the word faith until it means nothing but simply intellectual assent. Nothing about trust. We want to reduce it to a set of facts that we hold, a creed that we announce. A world wants to reduce faith to merely an intellectual assent to the facts of something that they are true. It's not less than that. So don't hear me say it's not an intellectual assent. It's just so much more than that. Let me give you an example. Thomas Jefferson wrote these most famous words in the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. Do you believe that Thomas Jefferson believed those words he wrote? While he was writing those words, his meals were being served to him by his slaves who were not included. While he wrote those words, his very wife could not own property or vote. Do you think he believed those words? I believe he intellectually assented to those words, all men are created equal. But he did not trust them because he did not free his slaves. He did not work so that his very wife could own the very property that she walked on or vote for the president that would come. Don't you see? It's more than intellectual assent that something is true. Faith is trusting in something being true by acting on that truth. If Thomas Jefferson truly believed that, he would have lived differently, worked differently. This is what it means to have faith. It's one thing to believe Jesus was your substitute. 
the immense gift that God has given to us. But it is another thing to live out that truth. You see, there are two ways that our sin has radically changed our lives. One is the penalty. Every human being in this entire planet sits under a curse because of sin. That's the penalty for the rebellion of humanity. And you might say, that's not my fault. That's some great, great, great granddad's fault. The problem is we do the same thing every day. He did, we do. And so we sit under this frustration, this brokenness, this evil. But also there's this shame that comes with it. It's the way the old writers used to talk about guilt. Guilt not in the sense that you um, feel guilty, but that you are guilty. That we all in humanity carry our island of misfit toys card in our wallets. And therefore we are ashamed. We're not only ashamed of what our first parents did, we're also ashamed of what we do. What we do to one another, what's done to us, we carry that in shame, tells its own story. It tells you you're not good enough. It tells you you'll never make it. It'll tell you that God can't forgive that. God can only go so far. He doesn't really like you. He puts up with you. You're not all that you are cracked up to be. You carry those stories. You tell those stories to yourself. You tell them to others because you believe those stories about yourself. That's what shame does. And here comes the gospel of a substitute, and on that cross, he paid the death, the penalty for all of our sin. And he gave us a new story. Because it wouldn't have been good enough to simply pay the penalty. Because we would continue on, the story would go on with a whole new chapter. But it'd be the same story. Instead, a new story comes into our story and overcomes our story and says that when the Father sees you, he sees his Son perfectly innocent. He who knew no sin became sin. And then we lose the whole other half of the gospel. We become the righteousness of God. And you think of, what is, what is that word righteousness? It means right standing with God. We stand before rightly. How? We still have all these memories. It is because he wrote a new story. One of the ways that the Bible depicts what happens to us when we believe, when we truly trust, is that it's like wearing a new garment. The closest that I can get to is at a wedding. At a wedding... Everybody's waiting, the, the, the groom is there, and everybody's waiting on one person. And now everybody thinks it's the father of the bride, but it's not. <laughs> he thinks everybody's there because he paid for it. The truth is, the only person that anybody's waiting for is the bride. And I tell you, I have done hundreds of weddings, and I have never seen an ugly bride. They all wear this dress that is given to them to wear. 
that tells a different story. No matter how she has lived her life before she put on that dress, she has a new story, a new relationship, a new life that begins that day. The reason I know that is so biblical is that when John begins to describe all of the people, both of the Old Testament and the New Testament, who believed, he calls them myriads and myriads because there was no way to count the number of people who believed and trusted this gospel. He said they had robes on that were white as snow that were given to them. Do you see that? You before the Father wear the robes of Christ. That's why the prodigal son is so cool. When that son comes home and dad says you have lived, no, he didn't say you lived a wretched life, did he? He said, my son who was dead is now alive. My son who was blind and now sees, I'm going to put a robe on him. Whose robe is that that he puts on? He puts on the robe of the elder brother. A new robe, a new identity for the son who wanted to come back as a slave, but he comes back as a son. So the first thing is that we got to get that. It doesn't matter what else I say. If we can't get that, you can't hear these other two responses. The other two responses, a simple one very quickly, is gratitude. When someone loves you this much, when someone gives you this immense of a gift, the only rightful response is gratitude. So how deep is that gratitude? The depth of your gratitude is directly proportional to the immensity of the gift and the immensity of the need. To the degree that we could see what God has given us and to the degree that we could see our need for what God has given us is the degree that we have gratitude. And what's the word for gratitude? Before you get to Thanksgiving, worship. What we do right here, right now, all the music, all the confessions, all the passing of the peace, the sermon, the music that will come, all of it is in response to the gift that has been given and the need that required the gift. That's what we're always reminding you. Somebody says, why do you do that old confession? Because we need to be reminded how deep and profound our need is for the gift. And that's why we give you the assurance of forgiveness because we need to be reminded that it, he's giving you the gift that covers the need. Lastly, give. You knew I was going to get there. I just saved it to the end. This give not only is the result of God's love moving him, but his love moves us. How much should I give? That's always the question that I get as a pastor. How much should I give? I know the Bible talks about 10%. Maybe it's supposed to be more. I think it's the wrong question, to be honest. I don't think it matters how much you give. I think it's about what you see that gift represent. As long as you see it as the leftovers then you might as well give zero, which some do. Some will see it as, this is what I owe God, so I'm going to give him 10% of everything, as if that's some super spiritual move on your part. 
it's not. God not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns the thousand hills too. He don't need your money. He's the richest being in the cosmos. Your money means nothing except what it represents. Let me tell you one story and then we're going to be done. Dale Moody, who was a famous preacher in the 1900s, 1800s, he founded Moody Bible Institute up in Chicago, but he tells this story of tent revivals, which was how a lot of preachers went around moving in the Second Great Awakening in the United States. And he tells a story of this one preacher preaching and how people responded to the gospel in two ways. One, non-Christians would come forward and pray to receive Christ, and Christians would take up an offering. And so they had these incredible baskets because the response from the crowds of thousands would be huge sums of money. And so they had these high baskets about that high. And so they passed these baskets, baskets around until everybody had a chance to make an offering. And this one kid, when the basket came around, climbed into the basket, and people passed the basket with this kid and came forward. And so when D.L. Moody asked the kid, what are you doing in the basket? The kid said, I don't have any money, but what I give is all of me. You getting it now? It doesn't matter how much you give. It matters what you give represents all of you because when Jesus died for you, when Jesus took your place, he owns all of you. All your gifts, talents, and abilities, all your time, and all your money. And so when he asks something from you, and you say, but I can't afford it, I wonder if he would have ever said, you know, I, I know you're broken and frustrated and evil's in the world, and the world is cursed. It's always Christmas and never, uh, I mean, it's always e uh, winter and never Christmas, but I really can't afford to give you my one and only son. Do you see? The depth of your understanding, my understanding of the immense gift that was given and the need is what moves me. So it is true. We either give to be loved or we give in response to the love of someone else. I'm either giving because somehow I think you're going to love me more or I'm giving because you love me. And that's true about God. You're either trying to get on God's good side because you already know you're on his bad side. That's why he sent his son, to get you on his good side. So you never have to do that. So any gift you give is in response to that. For God so loved, he gave. And we give because he loved us. He loved us so much that he sent his only son into the world, his one-of-a-kind son, in that whoever in this room believes it will not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful picture of a love that gives, that it might change and transforms our worship. 
our way of living before you with our neighbors, our friends, our family, strangers on the street that we see arguing with one another, that we live differently. Because when you looked at this fractured, broken, frustrated, evil-filled world, you sent your one and only Son into it to save it. And may we, by our lives, rather than try to earn something from you, give all of us to you for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.